welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is a, another episode in my travels by means of other people's viewing. And for this episode, I'm very happy to have a special guest that somehow has not been on The Last Thing I Saw yet, which is a travesty. But we're <laughs> going to correct it now. Uh, and that is Chloe Lazat. Welcome, Chloe. Hello. Thanks for having me on the podcast. What are you up to these days? Well, I am a freelance writer and film critic for various outlets like Reverse Shot, Cinemascope, Film Comments, Screen Slate, uh, and Vulture. And um, I am also the contributing editor at La Cinema Club, which is an online microcinema streams one film every week for free. <laughs> yes. I think one sort of specialty they have is kind of surfacing early, very hard to find shorts from filmmakers. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I think uh, they went down kind of a long digital rabbit hole to um, track down a VHS copy of an old uh, Claire Denis short. And uh, when they relaunched the site a couple of years ago, I think that was kind of the centerpiece screening. Mm. So that's kind of the magic of what they can do, but also just uh, really having their finger on the pulse of um, kind of who's doing new, interesting and really unique work in kind of the short filmmaking sphere that can often get lost, which is no easy feat, honestly. So. Yeah, happy to work with them. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's can't underestimate the value of a focused uh, spotlight like that. We can actually come back to we will come back to uh, one film that's been on uh, the Cinema Club. To start, though, I, I, I'd like to talk a bit about some of the writing you've been doing at Reverse Shot, um, which has been under the banner of Event Horizon is, is mm-hmm. the title. And it's I think a really important series of pieces because of the synthetic, I guess is one way of putting it, work that they do. And just a, also a blend of different kinds of writing, I think. I mean, one essay that maybe some listeners have also uh, already read is uh, The Aesthetics of Cope, which was written also at a sort of grimmer time, <laughs> somewhat <laughs> or darker, almost literally. Just a, a, I remember reading that in the winter. Um, time in the pandemic. Um, I, I wonder if you could sort of talk about that article and what sort of art you covered in it and where it came from a bit. Sure. Well, um, thank you for saying that, first of all, um, and thanks for enjoying the column. Yeah, I guess um, the synthetic quality of it is something that I always kind of hope for with this. Basically, the column is a space where I get to write about kind of new media or media that's not kind of screening theatrically or kind of through conventional like, you know, television channels. And the aesthetics of COPE was a way for me to think about kind of what are the new visuals we're seeing in pandemic era media. And particularly, I was really obsessed with the way that different, like, not middlebrow, but like very kind of mainstream and accessible things were transforming or trying to adapt to um, like the age of Zoom and things like that. And um, speaking to the weird way that these pieces evolve, this began when I came across an episode of the NBC procedural show, The Blacklist. A friend actually texted me about it and he was like, I'm about to send you a link to an episode that will absolutely ruin your life. And he's right, because it led to this column. So <laughs> uh, ruin your life, I say, in the best way possible. Um, that's really what I hope for with these. So anyway, The Blacklist is a cop detective show starring James Spader. You've probably never watched it if you're listening to this podcast, but maybe you watched this episode because they had filmed about a third of it before they had to shut down for the first kind of COVID quarantine lockdown. 
And then they decided to animate the remaining two thirds of the episode using previs technology, which is sort of the like halfway effective 3D rendering animations that are used to demo how action sequences might look um, in blockbusters traditionally. And so they were like, we should work with a studio in London to rush this for airing in kind of late spring and have all of the actors record their parts on their phone and we can kind of cut something together that way. And it led to this thing that was just kind of really like amazing to see on network television because it's usually a venue that's so glossy and yet it was this thing where you could just see all of the seams of it and like the animation just because of the speed of it and like kind of what that animation is traditionally used for, not for something like this. It like some details were really sharp and others were really like a glass of wine looks like a block of liquid or something. And I don't know, I was just really excited by seeing something that was so kind of out of place in a venue that's normally so polished. And so basically the essay goes through a lot of very different ways that uh, different pieces of media attempted to cope, as I decided to call the aesthetic, um, with uh pandemic era workarounds, I think, was another phrase I used in the piece. It's one of the things where what I think is brilliant is that these are things you also see and then you get used to. Exactly. Just talking about this makes me remember seeing the backgrounds when you have people on the TV, a news show, and they're all calling in from home. Mm. So you're seeing their backdrops. And that obviously became several memes or Twitter accounts about like people's backgrounds. But, but also just the quality of the video, it was clear to people were just like, okay, it's going to be crappier. That's just the way it is. Now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was weird like that. Very visibly making do. And I think the piece started with mm. um, the weird Golden Globe Awards. And now we don't even have that anymore um, because it was so disastrous. Um, but I kind of, I loved it. They, they were split screen, you know. Yeah. And I think part of what the piece does and its, and its path is it pretty logically concludes with uh, How To with John Wilson, which is, I mean, in, in some ways is, is like the, the, the consummate. It, I, always, I always wondered, would this show have made it to air in another era? I mean, obviously, it, mm-hmm. you know, it predated it, but there was something about that was so suited to an observational approach from a kind of a bemused standpoint. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Would it have taken off in the same way? I, I don't know. I think what drew a lot of people to that show is kind of the way that he manages to make something that's so organically like of his own perspective but doesn't feel like overly cute or like overly crafted in that way and like what I responded to especially during this period was like a lot of these different pieces of media were trying to like figure out kind of what to say about living in this moment and I feel like John Wilson is very earnestly like I'm just trying to like figure out how to get through my day or like figure out how to like you know just kind of react (laughs) to what's in front of me and also to the the people around me and maybe not like figure it out analytically but just kind of try to respond it respond to it in a way that feels honest and not like emotionally dead and so I found myself really moved by the first season finale of that show and of course he's made an entire second season that's also great and um I'm always amazed by his ability to to edit just from this like wide 
yeah, just like amazing street footage. I think he's great. Yeah. I imagine like his desktop has like 400 folders of I know. different bits of footage. Like, I feel like every interview you read with him too, it's like everyone's just asking, how do you organize and find your way through all of this? And he's kind of like, well, you know, you, you put it into folders and you, it's like, but, but how do you do that? Like, I don't know, just, it's one thing to kind of shoot a lot and like organize it, but to like actually be able to figure out how to navigate that and like link it in a way that feels like totally exciting and you know fresh is very amazing to me yeah and and i mean not to i, I know a lot of people have talked about his his, his movies but that one more thing is just the fact that these were shorts uh it yeah. was kind of for me like in a, an eruption of a rare form for tv something that's not like episode length is not like slavishly serial uh, it's and that was also surprising because it, it always felt like that's a form that didn't have a home in a way I think yeah I think that goes back to yeah not needing to find like an arc first although the there are the seasons are kind of arc it's true but yeah maybe it's more that like these are I mean they're obviously all from like a person but like that's really foregrounded hmm it obviously is a crafted persona, like everything is that you see on TV, but maybe it also is related to that idea of like not trying to like tie everything up so neatly, like things can kind of link and lightly relate to each other, but it doesn't feel kind of like as uh, structured in a way that Mm -hmm. you often see people trying to fit. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, speaking of a short form, this might be a, a segue into another kind of short form work that you've been interested in lately. Yeah, I think I think Nick is uh, creating a segue to um, a an Instagram account that I'd like to shout out. That's kind of in the Event Horizon wheelhouse, although I haven't figured out a way to cover it yet. I'm sure I'll try and figure out a theme. So one of the um, one of these cinematographers we were just praising for uh for the show is um a filmmaker named leah Jospi, and she has this instagram account called fave tiktoks that hopefully has not been like uh shut down as it does periodically seem to get shut down by instagram i'm not really sure why but she kind of does this amazing work curating different tiktoks from like gen z teens who she describes them sometimes as like Lynchian, which I know is kind of a loaded term, but it does feel like these are kind of these like erratic fragments of like these kids trying to like perform for the camera in a way that I guess Mm. is kind of like, I don't know, it feels like kind of the next kind of unhinged evolution of like the boy band kind of self-framing where it's like, (laughs) you know, you're, you're like performing dances for the camera, but like these, these people are doing it in a way that feels like the psychology behind it is like, opaque but also like overly earnest but also like why would you edit it like this why would you you know why are you talking to your ring light like it's your girlfriend and like creating this elaborate weird scenario about summer camp like it's just kind of they're working with narrative in a way that's pretty organic and exciting I I don't know she talks a lot about how their self-awareness is sort of like mesmerizing but as someone who grew up kind of in weird corners of the internet and now is kind of witnessing like kids like 10 years younger than me like coming to it in a totally new way um I think it's a really exciting space to be and also um I would also say um a lot of outlets covering it have covered these calling the account like cringe humor I wouldn't say that at all I think it's a celebration of kind of exciting new frontiers in internet psychology and kind of narrative that they're carving out I would recommend Mm. it to anybody yeah is there one that you can kind of recall in particular just to kind of 
describe? Well, there are different characters. I mean, it's sort of hard because a, a lot of what I like about them is that they are these like fragments where it'll be something about like the framing or the way that like the camera moves or like the way that they'll either like wink at the camera or hesitate or something. Like it's all these kind of like offbeat timing things or just like some have really bizarre like indoor settings. Like there's one where this guy tries to record a dance, I think, in like a, um, it must be like a school public restroom or something, but it's like completely tan and like it, it looks like it's almost like a national park restroom or something. I don't know. It's just <laughs> kind of like all these weird details of like setting and concept and just like performance that are really exciting. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's, I, I think part of it is tone and just kind of being attentive to like why these things are off. And so mm. I don't know. I mean, I mentioned it just for this column, just because I feel like that's always what I'm kind of drawn to stuff. That's like, this is off in a way that I haven't seen before. And it's hard <laughs> to put it into words. So I always feel like writing is a better way for me to do that. But it's a really singular account. And I also just, I'm always impressed with people who can curate anything from TikTok because that's, <laughs> that's hard to do. You mentioned, you know, growing up watching kind of corners of, of the internet and I'm always fascinated about that because I, I feel like there are these kind of swaths of online life that uh, get kind of buried, like there are these sedimentary <laughs> layers yeah. or something of them. What, what did you have in mind when you were mentioning that? I was a little too young for MySpace. I didn't like have a live journal, but my friends and I would like browse live journal and kind of like GeoCity sites that were like made by, you know, crazy people let's say they're <laughs> just like um very early youtube um so like i don't know i have a lot of affection for like very old school um windows movie maker fan videos where like mm. you're watching it and this is an aesthetic that um another one of my favorite artists connor o'malley has drawn on a lot in his work where it's like you know all these like familiar textures and kind of like dropping in a pop punk song and uh, then, then you just see this thing that's just like, this is just verbal soup. What happened here? Like, <laughs> top five glasses of chocolate milk? What is that? So I don't know. I think when you are seeing that all the time as a 12 or 13 year old, like, you're not going to make it to adulthood quite normally. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I'm just like, I'm fascinated by that's also, I think, why I'm interested in, like, what these kids are doing or, like, how they're processing, like, self-awareness and irony or, or not. Um, mm. Just because, like, I can't imagine what it must have been like to grow up 10 years later after that. But um, And Connor O'Malley, you also wrote about. Yeah, he's, he's great. So I guess the most recent piece you wrote is about uh, deepfake. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess that's partly because of this ongoing exhibition at Museum of Moving, Moving Image. Yeah, no, that's totally right. So there's this exhibit at the Museum of the Moving Image about deep fake technology that is called Unstable Evidence on Screen. So it sort of situates deep fakes um, not as something that has just kind of emerged recently. Like it's often framed as like, oh, you know, this is this really kind of scary, unprecedented type of deceptive media. But obviously, nonfiction images have been edited and you know, presented in a way that distorts the truth of the real world and have been doing so forever. And like, not even images, like thinking back to War of the Worlds or, you know, I, I don't know, there are lots of um, exhibits in the first gallery. Mm. But then kind of the, in the piece, I wanted to think about the different examples of deepfake technology that are presented in the exhibit. And to be sure, not all of them are strictly negative or about kind of like political deception. 
some of them are kind of like used to make people reflect on better worlds. Like there's a deep fake of um, Mark Zuckerberg gloating over his abusive data in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wanted to kind of look at examples like that where it's like this is a perhaps positive way of using deepfake technology and, and think about what is this accomplishing and why and uh, kind of what possibilities are there for art beyond this just because since the focus of the column is kind of how this technology intersects with art like i think deepfakes are they didn't originate for they were created for you know pornography and so it's just kind of very nefarious purposes. And so it's sort of weird to think like, I wrote another column on TikTok and it's like, it's not like a platform, like this is a technology that was created for, you know, very bad purposes. Like, um, but are, are there ways that we can re-envision the future of it? And I think that was something that was on the curator's minds as well. And yeah. yeah, I mean, again, this is also something sort of like the John Wilson finale where you can't really tie a bow on this on this uh, conversation. It's still something that's very much in, in flux. We'll see. But I think it's important to think this through. And I'm, I'm glad that the exhibit exists to kind of make people think more critically about what those futures could be. Yeah. At one point, I, I remember editing a, a piece I, I'd assigned about actors who are trying to figure out how to like retain legal ownership of their images after they die. Oh, wow. Which I, I'm not sure I actually use the word deepfake, but it seems obvious that that might be part of that if it's like fabricating new performances after people are dead. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It came out of reading an interview with Robert De Niro once where he gave this like weirdly cagey answer at some point about like what what happens after he's dead or something and i was like yeah what's, what's going on there Unnerving. yeah and then that led me to thinking about i feel like this is going to be a a pro-con debate like i don't know 10 15 years years from now when you know yeah i mean i think you're completely right um i mean for the piece i was thinking a little bit about like I mean, we had, this is not like an actor, but there was sort of a similar controversy recently with the um, Anthony Bourdain documentary where uh, it wasn't clear that he was synthesizing audio of him, like reading aloud emails that he did actually write, but you know, that that kind of raised a lot of weirdness around consent and kind of what the audience, like, you know, when the audience isn't sophisticated enough to think, okay, this is synthesized audio, maybe we will be soon, but like, what are the ethics of that? And then the other example was, um, have you heard about this movie Finding Jack? That's like a Vietnam war movie where they're going to reanimate James Dean. Yes. I but it's like a remember. studio. Yeah. yeah. Did it happen? Um, they're working on it, I believe. Huh. Um, but yeah, I, I remember when the news broke, everyone was kind of like, what does this mean? Like, I feel like there's a lot of like, since the technology is so new, we all kind of panic and we're like, but what does this mean? But thinking about James Dean after his death, like, he, here is someone, it's not like you're deceiving people that he's back or something. This isn't like a <laughs> Decker versus Dracula situation. Is there anything really weird or artistically interesting that you could do with the reanimated James Dean? I don't know. Maybe. So yeah. I don't know. I feel like that's going to be something really interesting to start to see happening, although it is kind of like unsettling, you know, because yeah, it's just like, what I, does this mean? <laughs> yeah. It's weird because it, it feels like science fiction, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it's, it's sort of the end logic of studio control in a exactly. way. Like, yeah. you know, part of the 
part of the appeal of the Marvel universe is that it makes the actors interchangeable in a way uh, mm-hmm. in, in that they're not necessarily the drawing power. It's, it's, it's the franchise itself, which, you know, actually kind of almost seems to take us back to a certain amount of unease surrounding the idea of stars, like very early yeah. in cinema, which, you know, shifted balances of power in terms of studios and stars, you know? So I, I don't know if this is someone like turning back the clock so that, you know, the, the studios are rightly in control. And then, yeah, meaning the, the end point, meaning that, well, what if we didn't even have to worry about the actor? You know, it's like, right. we just, we just bought their rights to themselves and, uh, you know, and then we made whatever we wanted to. Yeah, I know. It's like, for some reason, the, the Marvel dynamic you just described like that, that scares me more than like the James Dean idea, even though they're kind of related issues. Yeah. Um, I think this stuff will evolve to be its own thing. And obviously, you know, it'll appeal to the studios for the reasons you described, but it's hard for me to wrap my head around that, like replacing acting completely. People will always want to act in some capacity, I think. Yeah. Well, I think there's a, there, if I remember correctly, there's like already like a French TV show. It's like an interview show, but with like, you know, like Jean Gabin and, and, and others that's, I think is deep faked so that it looks really? like they're having interviews with them or something. I don't know. There was like a variety story about it like a year ago. And I thought everyone's going to be up in arms and then I never heard anything about it again. So I, I've never um, heard about this. I'd, I need to learn more about this. Yeah, <laughs> that's, have, that's really wild. That but um, one other thing that you've been watching uh, as well, speaking of jumping back to early days of cinema, uh, has been silent uh, one reelers yes so as part of this um deep fakes piece i was reacquainting myself with the great dictator actually partially because i was struggling with this mark zuckerberg video and i I found it kind of like it didn't really add up to me um and so i was trying to think of like what are other examples from history where like people have like tried to model like a really iconic persona like you know saying something that's totally opposite to what they actually would say. And so I thought back to The Great Dictator and thinking about how amazing, and, and thinking about acting as well, like the the triple performance of like Chaplin as um, his character in the film and as kind of this Hitler proxy, but also as himself, like kind of making this impassioned plea for world peace and kind of how, you know, unresolved and vulnerable and weird that sequence is. And so I, I wrote a little bit about that in the piece. So when I was revisiting the film, I found myself going down a little bit of a rabbit hole with the Criterion Channel's web of special features related to Charlie Chaplin films. And I I don't know, there was this really weird interview with a New Yorker writer where he, uh, it's like a three minute interview, but the whole thing is about how Charlie Chaplin is this undeniable sex symbol and it's all you can think about in some scenes from City Lights. And I was like, huh, all right. (laughs) That's not, no, I was like, that really struck me just because I- Little known fact. I know, the description was just like, this writer analyzes a scene from City Lights and you click on it and it's just like, these two men and just like deep serious conversation about this and I was like all right I mean no offense I just that's not usually my first thought when I'm watching these but anyway what then I was like watching old one railers I guess to get to the bottom of this idea but one of the things that I found was um Mabel's Strange Predicament which was directed by Mabel Normand um and it is the first ever on-screen appearance of the little tramp character and he he is a little bit of a scamp in this one (laughs) 
I mean, Mabel Normand is someone that I remember learning about in an episode of You Must Remember This. Um, although mm-hmm. I am realizing now I should go back and re-listen to it because I, I, You Must Remember This is like my designated long road trip podcast. And so I, I like I remember fragments of it, but I, mm-hmm. I, I need to go back to this episode now that I've seen Mabel's Strange Predicament. And so, I mean, it's kind of your your usual like slapsticky, like Mabel's in a in a hotel and she gets like, locked out of her room and um then charlie chaplin is the little tramp comes up the stairs and he's he's drunk and trying to like you know i, I don't know go after her and she has to hide into it in a different room but it then i just found myself kind of watching a lot of these quick silent era one reelers and mm-hmm. uh just kind of appreciative that i could do that from the comfort of my own home as you were saying earlier i mean yeah. I, I don't know it's uh yeah as someone who thinks a lot about a lot of filmmaking that's super current. It's nice to just go back and watch stuff that's like, you got 10 minutes, just uh, entertain me. Yeah, no, <laughs> but yeah, definitely. and she's, she's such a gem and like, uh, I mean, her life was really insane, kind of racked with like tabloid scandals, unfortunately, and uh, I think died very young of tuberculosis, but yeah, pretty amazing career as a silent film director. Yeah, it's interesting to think of, of the little tramp just being like a supporting figure in, in, in a movie, like not not being the main event. I mean, it's almost like, yeah, I mean, obviously he's a fictional character, but it's like running into someone before they're famous or something. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's that's partially what's exciting about this. And also just kind of such a different, less sweet take on the character. Yeah, I, I remember looking the film up after I watched it, and I, I think he was like only 24 at the time of filming and didn't understand why scenes were shot out of sequence and stuff and was very kind of green. But yeah, immediately received, like, I found a really crazy old review that you maybe should link to on the show page oh, yeah. with just, like, really <laughs> effusive praise for him. Just, like, I don't deal much in the act of prophecy, but this man will be a star. Like, I don't know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but um, mostly I was just excited to find out about Mabel Normand. I mentioned it just because I'm I'm clearly at the beginning of my Mabel Normand journey, and so maybe this will lead to something. But partially the last thing I saw should be about how our, you know, fascinations begin and spiral yes. into other things. So this yeah. is a stepping stone from the event horizon to whatever happens next with me and Mabel Normand. <laughs> That's right. We we knew you before you were the, the Mabel Normand scholar that you will be. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and and is that still that's still on Criterion or Yes, it is. You can go watch it on the Criterion channel if you have access to it. Jeez, which I just saw has a big Richard Linklater thing just started. Um, yes, yeah. Wow. That's me. I'm going to be watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually never seen a Scanner Darkly. It seems like the type of thing I would really like, though, so I'm excited to watch it. I, I don't know what it's going to seem like when I watch it again, because when I saw it, it was, it, it was such an uncanny... I mean, not Uncanny Valley experience, but just mm-hmm. an uncanny experience watching it. It's like one of the most palpably or like legitimately trippy movies. Just the way he's using the rotoscoping for this estrangement effect, but it also draws you in. I hate the word, but I do think it's an underrated movie of his. Cool. Almost because maybe people didn't know what to do with it. So I, I'm definitely, yeah, I would be curious to hear what, what, what you think of, of that one. Yeah, 
Yeah, there is this weird thing I think that happens where sometimes people, I don't know if you would describe the reaction to Scanner Darkly as dogpiling on it because I don't think I was paying attention, but um, because I was too young at the time. But um, there is kind of a way that sometimes I think people who can't like wrap their heads around something immediately kind of try to reject it or find flaws in it instead of like it just being kind of something that's productively of its moment you know um or you know not it shouldn't be about like resolving it but kind of reacting to the uncanny elements you're describing well especially when it's something that clearly is very imaginative and risk-taking in what it is it's it's sort of frustrated i don't know like it's a ludicrous comparison but for some reason i was just thinking about this the other day about tenant i just think a movie like that is like categorically different than other large-scale you know action endeavors and I, Mm -hmm. i found it kinetic in a way that other movies really don't achieve. Like, if, if I don't mm-hmm. even, that's a movie where legitimately I did not care whether I could draw you a diagram of the time travel going on. It was more just about yeah. the movement, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Like, also that, yeah, that there are, like, different ways of appreciating kind of, like, a swing that a filmmaker is taking rather than, like, okay, I didn't mm-hmm. logically get all of this or something. But sometimes it's, like, experiencing something can be kind of great on a visceral level yeah yeah definitely and i mean i don't know if this fits the bill another piece of work of yours recently is uh the cathedral you interviewed the director uh ricky d'ambrose uh for screen slate it's a movie that i think it's partly trying to get under your skin Mm -hmm. and there's this push and pull with the film i think because it's getting at this lifelong strain of discomfort and family malaise Mm -hmm. (laughs) that it's 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 not going to be the feel-good hit necessarily yeah getting under your skin i think is a good way of describing it too because yeah i mean what you were saying about things being like difficult that's something that I I think about a lot, I guess, just because, like, I I feel like a lot of the stuff that I'm drawn to is kind of, like, it's for these, like, very emotional reasons, even though, like, maybe the aesthetic is, like, not immediately, like, revealing or, like, not designed to, like, connect with you in kind of these, like, emotionally manipulative ways and stuff. So I'm always amazed when stuff can give you a new way into these kind of huge themes, like, this is a, a family drama set in the New York suburbs, as as he said, and he he deliberately didn't want it to be like the buzzwordy like takeaway kind of version of that. And I don't know, I I really enjoyed his previous work, his shorts, and also his first feature, um, Notes on Appearance. And I I think um, he his aesthetic gets compared to like Robert Brisson and Strapier a lot for this carefully crafted use of close-ups. He's often described in terms of, I guess, minimalism a little bit, but he clearly takes such kind of in-depth care with what he's doing and like creating authentic of the period magazine clippings. And st- like th- this is, this is stuff that's not like minimalist by any stretch, but I think he's someone who's always very careful about what he's putting on screen and why. And I think that relates to the themes in his movies in really revealing ways. So Yeah, I mean, I was just kind of curious to hear him talk about taking on a film that was a bit autobiographical in nature and also, you know, in this milieu. I was happy to talk to him. I I agree that I think some of the usual kind of touchstones that people invoke when talking about his work, they, they haven't always been what come to mind for me because he does seem to have more to do with finding like a a hybrid narrative Mm -hmm. way through sort of experimental means. It's strange to say because obviously it's mostly live action with, you know, interpolated video, 
but it, something like that it has almost more to do with like do you remember Dustin Guy DeFay's Family Nightmare? Oh yes, yeah. This completely unnerving family video or family home movie thing. It, it, you know, it feels like that's the sort of mood and drama and like you're sitting in on something you don't necessarily know if you're supposed to be there or not yeah that he kind of extrapolates to actors performing which is what was so intriguing to me about it yeah totally that's a really interesting comparison yeah I think kind of like with the the restraint and how he edits and cuts together the scenes you know he's trying to sort of evoke the sense memory of a young boy growing up kind of in this family but also like Mm. The way that the familial tension is observed is also contained within the way that he does that. I mean, there's this amazing scene where, you know, after his dad's mother passes away, he comes home, he watches his dad come home and just kind of like go into his bedroom and then sit down on the bed and you can only see his feet. Then you can tell that he just starts like crying. Mm. And it's like the ability to evoke like a kid seeing one of his parents like really crying for the first time and that web of feelings like just in this very kind of simple shot just kind of based on the way that you know it's it's deployed and positioned like I, yeah. I thought that was pretty stunning yeah yeah I also liked what you were saying about these movies that you have an emotional connection to even sometimes when they're, they're not like grabbing you by the lapels mm-hmm. and I mean sort of along the lines of cathedral I think uh, there was one other film you mentioned seeing that also a mix, I mean, in a totally different way, but also a mix of freshly shot material and found footage in a way. The short film, Home When You Return. Yeah, no, I had wanted to um, shout out the the programming on the Cinema Club. This is one we've shown recently that is really worth seeking out if you like this kind of thing. It's called Home When You Return, directed by Carl L. Sacer, who's a kind of young up and coming filmmaker. So How When You Return is kind of, um, I think when I was writing about it, I called it a ghostly melodrama, which I think is a maybe a catchier way of putting it than I will attempt to in the rambling I'm about to do. But basically, Alsacer came across an amateur filmmaker named Joan Thurber Baldwin, who made melodramas in the 50s. And he found himself like really responding to them, even though they were kind of technically you know, it's amateur filmmaking, but like you can still connect with that, of course. I think we can all agree. But also, he found himself kind of really interested in the perspective of them since uh, they're set in Maine, where he grew up and kind of reminded him of his family a bit or kind of the women in his family. And so, this kind of happened to him around the time that his grandmother was passing away. And so, he was cleaning out her house. And so, the short is a combination of him kind of filming around his grandmother's house as it's cleared out and kind of dressed by real estate agents for to be sold again. And um, it's some sequences from Baldwin's movies. And he kind of obscures the identities of both women throughout the film, like there are clips of a John Thurber Baldwin, but her face is blurred and their names are blurred. And he kind of takes um, like even the opening credits to one of her films, which kind of looks like this Douglas Sirky and kind of like seasons changing storybook and kind of blurs out all the names. And he uses superimpositions. He uses this kind of amazing rear projection sort of dream sequence. Um, he makes the house kind of like a place for these scenes to live again in a new way and kind of interact with the vacancy created by his grandmother departing the house. And I thought it was it was a really productive kind of exciting idea. And again, I kind of found myself responding to uncanny elements of of doing that and kind of absence and presence and 
I don't know. I, I thought it was really haunting. I'm not sure. I don't think it's available to stream on Vimeo or anywhere, but if listeners are hearing this, I hope they can see it somehow because it's really special. I, yeah, I hope it becomes available as well. Uh, home when you return. And I mean, the only thing that came to mind also was the kind of happenstance of some of this, you know, like, you know, even just in the creation of Home When, when You Return, having these these films to work with. And I, I sometimes wonder about what the quality of happenstance is now in terms of searching for things on, on the internet. It feels guided in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's almost hard to like cut through things. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I, I don't know. No, it's, totally. It's, yeah. 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 I mean, I... I've been thinking about a lot about that. I mean, sort of like what we were talking about earlier with the early internet. I mean, part of the excitement of that was kind of like, this was before the algorithms had like totally dug into the way that like, you know, our our curated feeds guide us through kind of with horse blinders on. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there was kind of a way that you could like find stuff in a totally different way. Like, I, I don't know. I mean... I've gotten a bit into record collecting over the quarantine period, I think sort of for this reason, just because like, you know, it's nice to kind of go into a store and kind of stumble on things and, you know, maybe have an interaction with the store clerk. But also like there are websites like Discogs where you can hunt stuff down and kind of run into random sellers with their stores Mm -hmm. and stuff. And like, I've had like kind of weird moments where it'll turn out that this is actually the bassist or sound engineer for a small band that I'm like hunting down or something who's like shipping it to me. And so I don't know, I think like serendipitous community is something that I'm always really excited to find and kind of try to seek out. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. That's why I'm impressed with Leia with fave TikToks because like, how do you curate like weirdness or go in and like truly discover something that feels like, you know, I don't know. I, I think I would have to spend years on TikTok before I started getting kind of weird. There's something about kind of like being delivered this feed that I, I find really unsettling and I, I don't like it. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't know if that's yeah. what you're thinking about. No, it's true. And I'm, I'm glad you, you were able to bring it back to the fave TikToks because I, that reminds me one thing I wanted to say say about that was it's a personal project, but it also makes me realize how much of that is going on on like a very concerted like industrial level. Like mm-hmm. clearly there are people whose jobs it is just to sort through mountains of material for a good cat video yeah, uh, or something. It's just worth remembering that like, yeah, you have these like industrial grade sorters out, out, out there. So it's 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 kind of nice to hear hear of a curator who is yeah. kind of making sense of things in, in a different way. I, I personally find Instagram like Insta videos when that page scrolling and, and like lots oh of things God, are moving yeah. at the same time. It makes my skin crawl. I know. You know, like it, I feel like I'm dissolving while looking at it. It's just. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, for sure. Well, um, didn't you have Amalia Ullman on the show once? Um, I did. She, yeah. she does a lot of artwork kind of about this. Um, yes, that's true. Like great yeah. conceptual pieces. Um, but yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. And, and I don't think it's, it's stupid at all. Like, I mean, that, that's the absurdity of internet era jobs. Yeah. I think we've covered a lot of ground and um, I, I just in the name of serendipity, I'll throw in uh, just quickly one thing I watched recently very much the result of a serendipitous recommendation from, from someone who sent a nice email, uh, and that is Slade in Flame, mm. a 1975 movie starring, you guessed it, this band Slade. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's kind of one of these like fictionalized but still drawing on experience stories of a band where they're playing 
another band um, called Flame. It's just this perfectly moving object <laughs> going through their their kind of rise to fame without making it feel at all like something with that arc. It was recommended to me as being like wonderfully depressing or something. And I think <laughs> that's true. And it's directed by Richard Loncrane, who I, I knew actually from watching in high school, uh, his film adaptation of Richard III, starring uh, Ian McKellen. Oh. Who I guess also helped adapt cool. it. And yeah, he does a whole, I mean, I guess this is part of the appeal of this character is that you get, it's kind of a whole a whole thing to play this villainous character, uh, Richard III. Um, also Annette Benning and uh, Robert Downey Jr. in it, I think. Mm. Um, so anyway, one, one of those kind of like sort of fell through the cracks Shakespeare adaptations. Anyway, that was also directed by him. Uh, this this movie starts out with this kind of incredible Altman-esque tracking shot, just kind of weaving through a wedding party that the band is playing. This is sort of before their rise. Wow. It's a fun end. It's uh, it's just on YouTube for some reason. And, and I hope it stays there, even though with kind of music related things, it's, it seems unlikely that it will stay there for long, but. Uh, this sounds yeah. great. So yeah. it's, they're, they're like playing a fictional band. They're playing a fictional band. And it's like kind band. of a horizon. Yeah. And, and they play, it has all the different elements of, has a band member that, you know, gets kind of sloughed off at one point. It has disputes. It has the idea of selling out in it, but just the way those beats work, it didn't feel familiar to me. It just, it just moves. And uh, I think that's part of what's interesting about uh, this director a bit, because I also remember Richard III having some like impressive tracking shots, not just on like a literal camera work level, but just also the way he moves through a plot. There's just something serpentine about it. I don't know. So I, wow. yeah, this was not, I don't want to oversell it because you'll, you know, you'll watch it and it'll look really like grotty and you won't understand, you know, no one can understand what anyone's saying. <laughs> no, I mean, this sounds, it sounds really up my alley for both subversive, yeah. uh, like biopic uh, <laughs> films and also glam rock. But um, yeah, I, I looked this guy up and I think the only thing I've seen that he's made is Firewall with Harrison Ford. Oh, wow. Um, which is a movie I don't remember much about, but there is a line of dialogue that I do quote often, which is he's on the phone with um, whoever's terrorizing his house and he just says, don't call me back because I have nothing to say to you. And then he just slams the phone down or maybe like hits, it, may, it might be a flip phone era movie. So he just kind of <laughs> puts it down. But um, yeah, it looks like he also did Band of Brothers, the series. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting, interesting career there. It's cool. All right. Well, we'll we'll end it there. Chloe, thank you for taking the time to talk and for giving us more fractal-like journeys to to embark upon. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been fun. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 